Right. Are we okay? Are we ready? Yeah. Oh, no, the children's got to go. Right, it's okay. Sorry about that. Just let the, the exodus begin. The number of visiting speakers that will be coming, uh, you know, from the end of this month onwards, we have a couple, uh, I think there are other from Sweden or Norway, they're with uh, the Association Crusade Evangelists, and at the end of September we usually have someone uh, from there that comes to minister, and it's a husband and wife uh, couple that's coming this time. I just forget their name, I just got it yesterday, but it slips my mind, but they'll be coming. And also, later on, uh, Yuha Katoa. Uh, Yuha is very much involved, in fact, he's one of the uh, directors, I think, probably, of Europe now, for the Christian Embassy in Jerusalem. And you're no stranger to, to Yuha's ministry, he's a lovely, precious brother, a great ministry, and he comes through periodically. And now he's got an extra workload, and I believe he's living in Jerusalem now, him and his family, and he'll be coming through, I think that's maybe in October. And also, uh, can any of you, well, say any of you, people my age, people my age and over, uh, so this is going back to the, the probably the mid, early, or early to mid-60s, you know, the time of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Jerry and the Pacemakers and all the, uh, the bands that was coming out of, of Liverpool and Manchester at that time. And there was one particular band called Herman's Hermits. Now you see all the old, all the, all the wrinkly saying yes. <laughs> and the young one sitting here saying, who in the world is Herman's Hermits? <laughs> well, they got, now John Greer's nodding his head as if he doesn't know, but we know he knows. Look, he's, come on, on up, John. And uh, well, it was a very famous uh, uh, pop group at that particular time and, and uh, their songs was in all the charts and uh, one of the writers for that who was in the group and also who wrote songs for the Drifters are oh, you see yeah, yeah okay uh, well he's coming uh, it's a Sunday night I think it may be in October and he's going to be coming and he's going to uh, give his testimony and sing and share uh, he became an alcoholic for years his life was absolutely destroyed and racked and ruined and he found Christ many, many years ago, and his whole life has transformed. And, and uh, so somebody rang me up and, who's having him and said, would you, would you, uh, would you have, uh, it's John Gone, but it's, it's, I think it's G-A-U-H-A-N, it's a funny way, John Gone. And uh, so he'll be coming. So there's, there's lots of things lined up uh, coming into this uh, second half of the year. It's hard to believe we're in September already, isn't it? The great British summer has come and went, and we hardly even noticed. <laughs> but anyway... All right, come with me this morning, please, to the, the seventh book of the Old Testament, uh, the book of Judges, and the sixth chapter. Judges chapter six. Verse one, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, because the Midianites, sorry, 
prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up and also Malachites and the people of the east would come up against them. And then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. The book of Judges uh, recounts for us uh, quite a long period of Israel's history over some 300 years, in fact. And uh, this is a time when the people of God were going through very, very turbulent times. Law and order had completely broken down. Terrorism was a fact of life. The economy was blighted with recession. And there was a terrible lack of national leadership. The very last verse of the last chapter of Judges says that because in those days there was no king in Israel, that every man did that which was right in his own sight. And above all of that, worst of all, the spiritual temperature of the country was at an all-time low. In chapter 2.17 it says, they went running after other gods. Chapter 3.15, they dwelt amongst the Canaanites. And then chapter 6 through 8 and many other chapters, war was in the gates. Is any of this sounding familiar? Now these things are not unconnected. The parallels are obvious. And throughout the book of Judges, uh, we see similar patterns that occur and reoccur again and again. One observer uh, noted this as sin, servitude, supplication and salvation. In other words, this was the pattern, the pattern of the Israelites sinning, sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. And even though God would come to them and plead with them, but they would continue to sin, go into all kinds of idolatry with the Canaanites around them until then they came into servitude, oppression. The nations around them oppressed them and they became subservient to them. And then, of course, supplication is they would cry on to the Lord. When they had enough, they would cry on to the Lord for deliverance, and God would send them a judge, a savior, a rescuer, a deliverer. And so against that backdrop of lawlessness and impoverishment and idolatry and sin and backsliding and covenant-breaking and failure and declension, it's all there, Against that, we have the long-suffering of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of Jehovah, and we see tremendous victories and deliverances and great heroes of faith that we find here doing their mighty exploits in the book of Judges. Now today, we're going to look at one of the greatest heroes of the book of Judges, that is Gideon. The Bible affords uh, more chapters to the story of Gideon and Samson than any other of the judges. In fact, there are three chapters that are solely related uh, to Gideon, about a hundred verses in all to tell his story. 
So therefore, we can uh, conclude from that that the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible, uh, who inspired it, wants us to learn some lessons and uh, see his instructions and his admonitions and his encouragements as we follow Gideon on this journey that he takes uh, from the wine press and Ophrah to the battle of torches and trumpets. And uh, throughout this journey, which would actually take several messages to cover, uh, I just want to highlight some of the, uh, the salient points uh, this morning and this evening, and really that is all. That will not complete it, but that's all I feel it to do at this particular time. Now, the overall view of these three chapters, if you would care to note that, would be chapter 6 would be Gideon the Commission, chapter 7, Gideon the Commander, and chapter 8, Gideon the Conclusion. It's a powerful, powerful story, and we haven't time to do all of it. And so when we begin here in chapter 6, we find Israel being impoverished, oppressed, and defeated by the Midianites. And this particular servitude, this oppression, uh, lasted for seven years. For seven years, the Midianites and the Amalekites oppressed Israel. They were making life intolerable for them. So who were the Midianites that prevailed against the people of God? Now, these were no ordinary enemies. And in fact, for the Israelites to be impoverished and oppressed by the Midianites really was a terrible thing. It was adding insult to injury. So who actually were the Midianites? Well, after the death of Sarah, Abraham took to himself another wife, Keturah, and Keturah bore Abraham six more sons. And the fourth of these sons uh, was called Midian. Interestingly, when you read Judges, uh, Midian inflicted the fourth oppression against Israel. Now, even though Isaac and Ishmael and Midian were all sons of Abraham, yet they were sons via different mothers. You remember that Isaac's mother was Sarah, and Ishmael's mother was Hagar, the Egyptian slave. And here we see that Midian is the son of Keturah. Yet, in spite of that, only Isaac was Abraham's spiritual seed. Only Isaac. Uh, it's the same again with Esau and Jacob. They were the natural seed of Isaac, but only Jacob was the spiritual seed. Now, all the promises of God were in Isaac, his spiritual seed. And that's probably why eventually Abraham recognized this and he sent Midian and all of his brothers, he sent them away to the east, away, far away from Isaac, probably did not want to influence Isaac in any way. You can read all that in Genesis chapter 25, by the way. And then in later years, Midian became a great nation. Uh, they were a Bedouin people. They lived in the desert and they traveled continually. But they were a great people, big nation of people. Uh, the trouble was they were a nation of people that despised God's people, hated God's people. And where and when they could, they would do the mischief 
And we see here that for seven long years, they have been coming against year after year after year, uh, the people of God. Men of the flesh only will oppose men of the spirit. The carnal man will always be against the spiritual man. Now in Judges 6, we find here that because of Israel's rebellion and idolatry, uh, we find here that God gave them over into the hand of the Midianites for seven years. Now the Midianites were much stronger than Israel. Uh, they had entered, as it were, the Iron Age and had great chariots and they had weapons and Israel had neither. They had neither chariots or weapons. They were a, a farming people, an agricultural people. And at this time they had uh, allowed themselves in such a spiritual state uh, that nations around them were taking them over and the Midianites had taken all of their weapons and wouldn't allow them to have any weapons. And so things were pretty dire in, in the state of the nation. Uh, they were completely subservient to them. In fact, things were so bad that now the Israelites were living in dens and caves in the mountains. But the Midianites were crafty. And so they would allow these farming people to come down throughout the year from the dens and the caves and the mountains to plow their land and to sow their grain and to hoe it and till it and water it and get it ready. And just about when the time when harvest was to come, then the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east, they would come together and they would come as, as like, a, like a multitude, like locusts for multitude, and they would swarm the land and they would decimate the land and they would eat up all of the crops and they would steal their goods and take their donkeys and, and take their cattle and all the rest of it and impoverish them again and again and again. It was a terrible, terrible uh, situation. And year after year after year, their harvest was stolen. All that work, all that endeavor, all that desire and longing for a harvest was brought to ruin and to loss. Question. Have you ever had your harvest stolen? Have you ever had a harvest stolen? Maybe a son, a daughter, or a grandchild. You prayed for them. You fasted for them, labored, cared for them, tilled and hoed them. And just about the time when you thought that it would bring forth a harvest, just about that time, they stopped coming to church. And they began to run after the world. The Midianites had stolen them. Unspiritual people, maybe even carnal Christians that they began to associate with, had began to woo them and turn their hearts and their heads away from the things of God. And the word became very, very attractive. And now, sadly, they're no different than the world around them. The world is where they're most comfortable at this time. In fact, if they do come to church, it's usually under protest. And there they sit. And they won't sing the songs of Zion. 
even to know the words of every song in the church. In fact, they're embarrassed to come to church. They feel so uncomfortable. It's not their scene anymore. But they come because they feel they have to. And so the God of this world has blinded their minds. And they run after the world. And the harvest is gone. Or maybe even off they went to Bible school. And you had high hopes. You thought, well, when they go to Bible school, they'll learn the great truths of God's Word. And instead of that, they got some unbelieving lectures who did their very best to undermine any faith they had. And they began to distrust the Bible and feel that it wasn't inspired. And some of it was just metaphorical and it was just stories, but it wasn't actually the truth. And the harvest was gone. And you see, that's what the devil wants to do. He wants to steal the harvest. What you have worked for, you have prayed for, you have planted, you have sowed. And just about the time when you believe it's coming to fruition, suddenly the Midianites come in and it's gone. And you're wondering, what have I done? I did my best. At least if you've done your best, you can say, well, I did my best. I tried my best to show them the way. There's some parents who can't say that, sadly. Because they're never hardly at the church anyway. There's no example to their kids. But you were an example. You did your best. But it seems like the harvest has been stolen. The name Midian and Keturah gave him that name. It means strife. And it was a prophetic name because that's what he became. Strife. He was family in the flesh, but he was strife in the spirit. Sometimes the greatest opponents of the people of God are the so-called people of God. Have you found that? Sometimes the people that cause you the most trouble are people who should know better, but they're full of strife. And they're not walking with God themselves because they're of the flesh. Abraham had two families according to the flesh, but had only one according to the Spirit. And strife in the family of God will bring tragedy and disaster. Strife in any family, for that matter, brings tragedy and disaster, doesn't it? It's a recipe for trouble, isn't it? You see that right at the very beginning of the history of man with Cain and Abel, with two brothers. One strove against the other. You see it with Jacob and Esau, twin brothers. What a difference between the two. You see it with Ishmael and Isaac. You see it with Joseph and his brethren. 
You see it even though they weren't family, but you see it with David and King Saul. And where there is strife, whether it's in the family, if your physical, natural family, or whether it's in the family of God, it causes tremendous trouble. That's why the Bible says that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Can't stand. In Luke chapter 22, we see strife among the disciples of Jesus. Arguing among each other, who would be the greatest in the kingdom? And it caused strife. You see in the early church in Acts 6, there was strife between the Greek-speaking Christian Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Christian Jews about the distribution of the food. You know, the devil loves to slip into the things that are non-essential and not really that important in the big scheme of things and get in there and cause all kinds of trouble. And here in a simple thing that distributing food within the church, what could be simpler than that? And yet it caused such strife that the apostles had to intervene to sort it. In Galatians 5 it says that strife is a work of the flesh. In James chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, James says, strife is devilish. Verse 16, it brings confusion and every evil work. Strife will rob us of our harvests. It gives an entrance to the evil one to come in and steal from us things that are precious, things that are godly and good and right. And Midian continually caused strife for the people of God. Proverbs 10 and 12 says that hatred stirs up strife. Proverbs 29, 22, that anger stirs up strife. Strife puffs up pride. It sees with anger. It's green with envy. It wallows in self-pity. It's jealous. It's suspicious. It schemes. It undermines every evil work, the Bible says. It produces. Whenever strife comes into a marriage or a family or a church, it causes all kinds of problems and it robs us of the harvest. Midian was a fierce enemy. Strife will cost you three things. It will cost you your liberty. In verse 2 it says they were hiding in caves and in dens. They weren't free to walk the highways anymore. They couldn't feel safe even walking the roads anymore. They had to continually hide in the dens and the caves. It will cost you your prosperity. Verse 3 and 4, it steals your harvest. And it will cost you your strength. In verse 4 it says, they left no sustenance for Israel. Neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey, nor grain. No food. What is our food today? It's the Word of God, isn't it? That's our food. But whenever there's strife, I'm afraid the Word of God goes out the window. It's the last thing we look to. It's the last thing we look at. Or else if we do look at it, we're only looking for some way to justify our strife 
to pick out some verse to justify why we're in strife against somebody else? What is our strength? The joy of the Lord is our strength. There's not much joy whenever you're in strife. Sure there's not. That's not a happy time. Sure it's not. Not much fun when you're in strife. Whether that's with an individual or your whole family. It's awful when a family is just ripped apart by strife or there's some individual in your workplace or whatever and every time you see them, the hair bristles in the back of your neck. Not much joy in that. And it steals your harvest. Your harvest may be your family. Maybe your finances. And maybe something that you're planning for your future. devil wants to rob you of the future that God's got for you. There's nothing surer than that. That's what he wants to do. The thief comes not but for to steal, kill, and to destroy. That's his business. He's not going to change. And he's good at it. He's had lots of practice. He knows how to do this. The Bible says we're not to be ignorant of his devices. We need to spot it early on so that it doesn't get in and we begin to deal with it. Don't you get sick and tired of the enemy trying to steal your stuff? I mean, don't you get sick and tired of it? You've worked, you've labored, you've sacrificed, and just when it's time for the harvest, suddenly the enemy comes intimidating, threatening to steal your very harvest. And for seven years, they had their harvest stolen. But there comes a time when enough is enough. When you've had it, when you put the foot down and say, thus far and no further, the tide has to turn. The enemy must be defeated. If we're going to keep our harvest, if we're going to win our loved ones back, if we're going to get them track again, and all of us, I'm sure most of us anyway, has been through this with our loved ones, showed such promise, seemed so keen one time, but not at the minute. Dry as dust, hard as nails. But we've got to get them back. The Midianites have stolen them. And so in verse 6 it says, Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. At last, after seven years of taking it on the chin again and again and again, they had enough. And they decided... It's time something was done about this. But they didn't know what to do. And they had no weapons. And they had no strategy. And it didn't look as if they had any hope. This was a formidable enemy. <laughs> so they did what they could do. They cried out unto the Lord. They brought their case before the Lord. 
And the fact that they cried out before the Lord shows that they were absolutely desperate. This wasn't just a wee kind of a weak woolly prayer. This was a crying out from their hearts unto the Lord. Something has got to change. Something has got to be done. Even though they didn't know what that would be. Or how it could be done. But they knew if it's going to be done, it's going to have to be with God's help. Because they couldn't do it on their own. And so they cried out unto the Lord. And do you know what? The Lord heard that cry. The Lord heard that cry. And now it's time for God to intervene. Isn't it great when God intervenes? It's great. Sally and I knows what it's like. I'm not telling tales out of school. Her own daughter has told you publicly for two years she went back into the world, lived in the world. I'm not encouraging you to do that and she wasn't either because it was a total waste of time, dangerous place to be. But the devil distracted her, got her off track for a while and it was a difficult time for us as a family. But we got desperate. Because that which we had prayed for, and longed for, and worked for, and labored for, was being stolen from underneath our noses. And you know, whenever you're a, a church leader, it's even more difficult because the devil mocks you. What kind of a church leader are you? If you had been a great church leader, this wouldn't have happened. If you were a more godly man and you are a more godly woman, this wouldn't have happened. But we had done everything we knew to do. We had brought her up the best we could. But here she is, she's out in the world. So what do you do? You get desperate. And we got desperate. We cried on to the Lord. took ourselves to a period of prayer and fasting. Believed God would move, even though we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to say. We'd done everything and said everything. Nothing was working. But God heard the cry of our heart. When you get desperate enough, God will hear the cry of your heart. And unbeknown to us, for that extended period of time when we were praying and fasting and seeking God, God was beginning to move. She never told us. Because she knew if she did, we'd be back onto her again. But God was beginning to move. She'd drive home from uni. She says there's times she had to pull into the side of the road because she was crying that much. And she didn't know why. There was no reason for it she could think of. But it was the Holy Spirit softening a hard heart, moving again in a heart that had been stolen away. And sometime later, and she's often told this, I've heard her telling it in public meetings, she's standing in the tent in Hillsborough Bible Week, and God broke her. And she wept her way back to Christ. And she's never been the same. 
That was many, many years ago, and she's never been the same. God set her in fire. I'm telling you that because some of you are walking that path right now. And I feel for you because we've been there. We know what that's like. And what I'm saying is don't give up. And don't give in. Keep trusting. Keep believing. God can find ways that you don't even know about yet. God can get somebody to cross their path. They may be in the ends of the earth away from you, but God can get somebody to come across their path and things can begin to change. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord heard their cry. And what a remarkable thing happened. And tonight, because I don't even start into it now, tonight we're going to see this marvelous victory that Gideon got over Midian. In fact, it was such a victory that Midian never ever rose against them again. <laughs> they were so utterly defeated, they never rose again. It's one of the greatest military victories in history. It's one of the most exciting stories in the Old Testament. And it's for you and it's for me. And tonight, we're going to see this wonderful, glorious victory that God gave. That God gave. And they had to acknowledge it was the hand of God. <laughs> because they could not have done it by themselves. Now you say, well, I know the story well. Well, maybe tonight we can get some new light from an old window. There's always something else to learn, isn't there? And so we're going to see tonight, we're going to encourage ourselves in the Lord. Because we all need encouraged, don't we? And just when you think, I'm about to give up, it's hopeless, I can't do anything, God can intervene and He can turn the whole thing around. Glory to God. <laughs> And you can get a great victory in Christ. Lord, we thank you today that you see every need. You hear the cry of every heart. You know where every single one of our family is today. You know our needs. And Lord, we bless you that you are able, more than able, to meet this need. That nothing is beyond your help. Lord, you can grant a mighty breakthrough. And so we thank you for the inspiration of your word that encourages, challenges, keeps us going. Whenever we feel there's nothing else we can do, Lord, we're encouraged by your word. So we thank you for it, Lord. Hallelujah. few moments we're going to uh, 